Thanks, Jen, for that reflection around the communion table. You may be thinking that there's so much uncertainty that we don't know where things are going, as Jen mentioned. We don't know what's going to take place within our world with this virus that is ravishing the the world as we know it in our country. And we're looking for something to stand upon. We're looking for a fixed point to focus our eyes on. But things are changing so rapidly, we don't know where to look. If you're feeling like that, if you're feeling the anxiety of the unknown, if you're feeling the, the instability of the financial crisis that's, that's pursuing and, and a part of the coronavirus, maybe you're, you're feeling extremely isolated and in that there's just so much uncertainty of what the future will hold. Then what we need is something that we can hang on to, something that will fix our eyes, something that we know won't change. And if you're feeling some of those emotions, then this morning we have some scriptures that we want to reveal, something that we can hang on to and a promise that will never let us down. So if you're in a a place where you're feeling unstable, then this message is for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we open up scripture on this Easter Sunday, we pray that we would find the fixed point to set our eyes upon and our feet on a foundation, so that we may know that in the midst of uncertainty, we have something that will never change. We have a promise that will never give up. Reveal that to us today through Scripture, we pray. Amen. Have you ever made a promise that you didn't keep? Have you ever made a promise to someone that in the moment you fully intended on keeping that promise, yet for whatever reason, maybe your value system was a bit different and you weren't able to follow through. This year, in a couple of months' time, I have the privilege of celebrating 20 years of marriage with my incredible wife. There was a promise that we made on our wedding day in sickness and in health, in health, in silly financial decisions, that's me, and in financial stability, that was a vet, in all different seasons of life, that we would honour our commitment. Now, that's a pretty major promise for me. That's probably the greatest promise that I've ever made on this earth, other than my promise to follow Christ. A lot of the other promises that I've made, sometimes I've let them go, sometimes I've failed, some have made promises to my kids, I'll be home early to be able to do something and, and work's got me caught up or I've forgotten and my priorities have shifted and, and I haven't honoured that promise. And so for some of us, the idea of promise can be, can be perceived differently. Well, today, to, to understand what a true promise means, we need to see the credibility of the words of that person that's making a promise. And today we're going to be looking at the credibility of a promise that Jesus Christ made. In John 3.16, he made a promise. He said, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. Whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not perish. Shall not perish but have eternal life. Those words 
only work if the promise is true. Those words only work if the foundation, the credibility of the one saying those words is trustworthy. And if those words are true, then there is an action that will follow. But we need to make sure that those words are true. The very next verse, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge it harshly, but to save the world through him. Today we're going to look at some of the evidence to see if these words are trustworthy. Before we do that, we need a really quick history lesson. The history lesson goes a little bit like this. We see that at this time in the world, Rome was the superpower. Rome was in leadership and Rome ruled with an iron fist. To do something against Rome meant death. To do something against Rome was to go against the nation and the judgment that took place was extremely harsh. To go against Rome was punishable. There was prison, there was torture, and there was execution, which took the common form of lashing with whips and also the execution that took place with prisoners being put on crosses. And so we've got to understand that Rome as the superpower is at play and many of the elements of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection intertwined with Rome. And so we know that some of these things took place because Rome said so. We also need to understand that there is a conspiracy theory at play all the way through, even at the time of Jesus' crucifixion through to today where people try to disprove the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're interested in looking this up, there's a thing called swoon theory. Swoon theory is about the idea that Jesus either didn't die, he took maybe a herb that mimicked death, or that he was on the brink of death, that it looked so much like he was dead that he was in a deep coma. And therefore... When the resurrection took place, it wasn't that he died, he just almost died. Almost sounds a little bit like a a spy movie. Another theory was that the disciples were going, disciples were Jesus' followers, were going to come and steal the body away. Therefore, mimicking that Jesus came alive. If these theories are correct, then the promise isn't true because what Jesus said isn't trustworthy. So this morning we're going to look at the evidence to see if it's a conspiracy or if it's truth. Today, if you've got your Bibles, the words will be up on your screen as well. But we're going to be going through a fair bit of Scripture. And we're going to start with the person who cast the judgment for Jesus to be executed. We look at Pilate. Pilate was the judge. And Pilate himself said that he washes his hands of the decision to execute Jesus and Jesus was to be taken off and put on the cross. Pilate then, to to see that if the judgment that he had put down, that he had allowed to take place, had been followed through, goes and asks a centurion. Who is a centurion? A centurion is a guard, a Roman official representing Rome as Pilate was. 
The centurion's job was to make sure that the orders were carried out by the next layer of leadership and authority. And so the centurion goes to see if Jesus has died. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead because of the harsh treatment leading up to his crucifixion on the cross. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. If Jesus was not dead, that centurion's consequence for getting the message wrong was his life would be substituted for the misdiagnosis. That centurion's life would be forfeit and he would be killed. Pilate, under his level of leadership and authority, would have also been questioned for why he gave permission for the body to be handed over if Jesus was not dead. So if we see that the judge says that Jesus was dead and the soldier says that Jesus was dead, we start to build a bit of a picture. But we need some more evidence. So what about the guards that were a part of the execution of Jesus? We see, and we're spending some time in Mark here, and we see in, in Mark, we see that, that a certain man from Cyrus, Simon of Alexander and Rufus, were passing by on their way to the country and they were forced to carry the cross. We see the spectators were forced, more evidence. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which he did not take. And they crucified him, the guards, dividing up his clothes and casting lots to see what each would get. And it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. So we see that the guards who were a part of it were a part of the crucifixion. Crucifixion meant that it was seen through to death. It wasn't just putting on the cross for a while and then taking off when you served your amount of time. It was a death penalty. And there's a time when the guards were doing their daily routine. They, they They weren't evil people. They were people whose job for Rome was to execute prisoners. And so they were executing, they were doing their daily routine. They were following through what their rules were, what their job was. But then we see that the ones whose, whose job was to ensure that the people were dead, the actual executioners, we have the guards and we have the executioners. The executioners believed that Jesus was dead. The soldiers therefore came in John 19, and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified next to Jesus, one on his left and one on his right. And then those of the other. Verse 33, And when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. Instead, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The executioners with a spear ensured that he was dead. They didn't break his legs, but they did thrust a spear into his side, ensuring that he was truly dead. Herbs and conspiracies versus a spear. The evidence shows that Jesus was dead. We see in John 19 that goes on, that says even the funeral directors, those that, that prepared bodies for burial, believed that Jesus was dead and they wrapped his body and they placed it in a tomb which they sealed. And then ultimately in the midst of Jesus' death, 
We see that the judge believed that he was dead. We see the guards believe that he's dead. We saw the executioners believe that he's dead. We see that the funeral directors believe that he's dead. But something else took place when Jesus died on the cross that was irrefutable that the entire world noticed. Because at that moment, when Jesus looked at his people, the people that he loved, and said, it is finished, and he hung his head and he died on that cross, the entire earth shook. It shook the the cosmos, the world, the universe cried out at Jesus' death for all to see, so much so that, that one of the guards said, surely we've made a mistake and this is the Son of God. And so the evidence shows that Jesus died. But for our promise to hold true, we need evidence that Jesus rose again. Firstly, we see the evidence shown in Mark chapter 15. We see a Roman seal that was broken. What is a Roman seal? What they would do in those days is when they pushed, put a, a body in a grave or in a cave, as they often did, they would roll a stone or something in front of it and then they would take a, a mortar, a clay or a wax, depending on the, the richness, how much money people had, and they would seal up the stone with a seal. They would seal it with this clay or with this wax. And they would do that for two reasons. Number one, they would stop the smell. Because as bodies were there for a number of days and weeks, it would start to smell. And the, the seal would hold in the smell. But also, a Roman seal meant that there was an emblem that was placed on the wax or on the clay. And the emblem that was stamped on that was the emblem, the seal of Rome. And to have that seal meant that there was a legend account of where that seal went because it represented Rome. And we know that Rome's uh, forms of um, keeping records was so firm that we still have some of those today in practice within Western society and within our world. And so we see Rome has placed its mark on this seal, which meant the only way that that seal could be broken was by Roman authority given to break the seal. Yet we see in Mark 15 that the seal is broken and the stone is rolled away. We, We see more evidence in that the grave clothes have been left. If If Jesus was to be stolen away, if Jesus hadn't fully died, why would you leave the clothes? If you're in a hurry, just go. Grab him and run. If, if you're not dead, well, you're not going to get undressed. You're going to take what you got. And you're going to get out of there. Why would the clothes be left other than evidence that Jesus' body was, was miraculously brought back to life in a supernatural way. We see the large stone that took many people to roll into place that would, would land in a divot so that it was hard to get out. They didn't want people accessing it and they really didn't want Jesus accessing it, because uh, the disciples, because they were afraid that this may be a big conspiracy. This is going to show that Jesus was who he said he was and so they created a, a, a trench for the stone to fall into to make it hard for it to be rolled away. We then see that the, empty, the, the tomb is empty in John, and then we see 
that the Roman guards, now it's not normal to have a Roman set of guards placed at the entrance of your tomb. That wasn't normal. But once again, there was a conspiracy. People were afraid. If this takes place, if what Jesus said would happen, happens, and that meant he is who he said he is. And so they placed a a group of guards at the entrance to the tomb who, when the angel appeared, grew faint and were like dead, you know, just paralyzed like dead men, the scripture says. And they fleed, once again, failing Rome. We see that the guards are gone. We see that Jesus appeared to many, many others. So what do we see? We see that, that in the account of the gospel, that the evidence would show that Jesus rose to life. And he's not dead, that he has risen. But there's more evidence. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you could fabricate this. You could write this. I know Rome would go against it at that time and the, 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 these manuscripts that have turned into our scriptures wouldn't last, but there's more evidence. What do we see? In Matthew 28, we see the guards thought that Jesus rose again. We see that those who hated Jesus, those who actually went out off their, their own accord to persecute Jesus, we see a guy called Saul who was anti-Christian, anti-church. He was actively killing, murdering, imprisoning Christians, had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself that radically changed his life. Even those who were against Christ believed that he had risen. We find that in Acts chapter 9. We see the angels said that he is not here, that he has risen. We see that the Jews, those who executed Jesus on the cross, those who weren't his followers, believe that he has risen again. We see the women, because Jesus is outside you know, gender. He doesn't care if you're man or guys. And in, in a time where mostly guys were written around, he says even the women saw that he was alive. And then the followers In Corinthians, we see there's gatherings of of 500 that believe that he was risen. But more than that, more than the evidence we see in Scripture, more the evidence that those before him or against him saw that he was alive, witnessed that he was alive. The followers in the Bible believe that he is alive and the followers that walk this earth today also believe that he is alive. So we have had encounters with the living Messiah, Saviour, the one who loves us more than we could ever understand. For those of us that are followers of Christ, much like those in God's word, we have had encounters with him. We have seen answers to prayer. We have felt his presence. We have witnessed supernatural things that, that go beyond our understanding that can only be attributed to a God who is not dead but is alive and who cares for us. If Jesus is not dead, if he is alive, then we go forwards in the the Gospels to the very next book, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends something, which is his Holy Spirit to dwell among us and within our hearts. 
And so when we hear those words, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When we hear those words, we accept that this is truth. And if you accept that this is truth, then we have a promise that we can stand upon. We have a promise that won't change. 2,000 years after Jesus rose again, we can still celebrate that our God is not dead. He is truly alive. That what God said he would do, he did do, and he will continue to do. That in the changing nature of our world, with the shifting day-to-day updates that we get from the government, the one thing that will not change is that we have hope and a future in our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to offer a challenge to us. The first challenge is this. Have you accepted the promise? Have you accepted the promise? What does this promise that God makes mean to you? For some of you, it may mean that that you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer. The prayer goes like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I accept your promise. I ask that your spirit would enter my life so that I would have a foundation that is based on the never-shifting, firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Help me to become more like him and to love you more and more each day. Help me to fix my eyes on something that won't change. And Lord, may your spirit be felt in my life so that I will never be alone again. In Jesus' name, amen. For others of us, what does the promise mean to us? Those that have called themselves Christians for a long time, but we're still sitting in uncertain times. Well, a verse that has rung out through my entire Christian walk from the time that I learnt it on camps is a verse in Jeremiah 29. And it goes like this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This verse was written in a time where God's people were in slavery. Things weren't good. It's easy to praise God when things are good, but when things are tough, it's hard to reach out. But we see in this moment that in the hard times, God offers a promise, a declaration. I have plans for you, for hope and a future. The verse goes on. If you call on me and if you search for me with all of your heart, you will find me. So what does this promise mean to us who are Christians, who are, who are finding things shifting a bit, that the foundation is rocking a little bit, who's, the uncertainty is, is starting to get the better of us? I want you to know that when you search for him with all of your heart, you will find him. And when you find him, that is a promise, that is a foundation that will never change. 
that is a foundation that is firm, that is a promise that will never, ever let up. From the beginning of the world, God wanted to reconcile us, restore our relationship with him, which he did through Jesus. That promise has never and will never fail. So in these unchanging times, will you accept the promise? Will you search for God, knowing that he is not dead, that he is alive? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have access to a living God. We have access to your Son through the Holy Spirit, that we know he is not dead, that history has proven time and time and time again that you are alive. And more than that, that those who call themselves followers of Christ have their own testimony, their own story of how they have encountered you time and time again. Lord, we thank you that we get the privilege of calling you our Lord and Master. And in times in this world where things are ever-changing and ever-shifting, we have a foundation that we stand upon that is our relationship with the living God. Help us this week to fix our eyes on your promise so that we may know that the one thing that is certain in this world is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.